Chapter Thirty Four of the Scalp Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. The Scalp Hunters by Thomas Maine Reed. Chapter Thirty Four: The Phantom City. On the morning of the fourth day, our spies came in and reported that the Navajo had taken the southern trail. They had returned to the spring on the second day after our leaving it, and thence had followed the guiding of the arrows. It was Tacoma's band and all about three hundred warriors. Nothing remained for us but to pack up as quickly as possible and pursue our march to the north. In an hour we were in our saddles and following the rocky banks of the San Pedro. The long day's journey brought us to the desolate valley of the Gila, upon whose waters we encamped for the night. We slept in the celebrated ruins, the second resting place of the migrating Aztecs. With the exception of the botanist, the Coco chief, myself, and perhaps Sanguine, no one in the band seemed to trouble himself about these interesting antiques. The sign of grizzly bears that was discovered upon the mud bottom gave the hunters far more concern than the broken pottery in its painted hieroglyphics. Two of these animals were discovered near the camp, and a fierce battle ensued, in which one of the Mexicans nearly lost his life, escaping only after most of the skin had been clawed from his head and neck. The bears themselves were killed and made part of our suppers. Our next day's march lay up the Gila, to the mouth of the San Carlos River, where we again halted for the night. The San Carlos runs in from the north, and Sanguine had resolved to travel up this stream for a hundred miles or so, and afterwards strike eastward to the country of the Navajos. When the determination was made known, spirit of discontent showed itself among the men, and mutinous whisperings were heard on all sides, shortly after we halted. However, several of them strayed up the banks of the stream and gathered some grains of gold out of its bed. Indications of the precious metal, the Guiza, known among the Mexicans as the Gold Mother, were also found among the rocks. There were miners in the band who knew it well, and this served to satisfy them. There was no more talk of keeping on to the Prieto. Perhaps the San Carlos might prove equally rich. Rumor had it also given it the title of the Golden River. At all events, the expedition must cross the headwaters of the Prieto in its journey eastward, and this prospect had the effect of quieting the mutineers, at least for the time. There was another influence. The character of Sanguine. There was no single individual in the band who would care to cross him on a slight grounds. They knew him too well for that, and though few of these men set high values on their lives, when they believed themselves, according to mountain law, in the right, yet they knew that to delay the expedition for the purpose of gathering gold was neither according to their compact with him nor agreeable to his wishes. Not a few of the band, moreover, were actuated by motives similar to those felt by Sanguine himself, and these were equally desirous of pushing on to the Navajo towns. Still another consideration had its influence upon the majority. 
the party of the Dacoma would be on our tracks as soon as they had returned from the Apache Trail. We had, therefore, no time to waste in gold hunting, and the simplest of the scalp hunters knew this. By daybreak we were again on the march, and riding up the banks of the San Carlos. We had now entered the great desert, which stretches north from the Gila away to the headwaters of the Colorado. We entered it without a guide, for not one of the band had ever transversed these unknown regions. Even Ruby knew nothing about this part of the country. We were without compass, too, but this we heeded not. There were few in the band who could not point to the north or the south within a variation of a degree. Few of them but could, night or day, tell by the heavens within ten minutes the true time. Give them but a clear sky, with the signs of their trees and rocks, and they needed neither compass nor chronometer. Life spent beneath the blue heavens of the prairie uplands and the mountain peaks, where a roof rarely obstructed their view of the azure vaults, had made astronomers of these reckless rovers. Of such accomplishments was their education, drawn from many a perilous experience. To me, their knowledge of such things seemed instinct, but we had a guide as to our direction, unerring as the magnetic needle. We were transversing the region of the polar plant, the plains of whose leaves at almost every step pointed out our meridian. I grew upon our track and was crushed under the hoofs of our horses as we rode onward. We traveled northward through the country of the strange-looking mountains, whose tops shot heavenly and fantastic forms and groupings. One time we saw semi-globular shapes like the domes of churches. At another, gothic turrets rose before us, and the next opening brought in view sharp needle-pointed peaks shooting upward into the blue sky. We saw the column forms supporting others that lay horizontally, vast boulders of trap rock suggesting the idea of some Andaluvian ruin, some temple of gigantic droids. Along with the singularity of formation, there was most brilliant coloring. There were stratified rocks, red, white, green, and yellow, as vivid in their hues as if freshly touched from the palette of the painter. No smoke had tarnished them since they had been flung up from their subterranean beds. No clouds draped their naked outlines. It was not a land of clouds, for as we journeyed amongst them, we saw not a speck in the heavens. Nothing above us but the blue and limitless ether. I remembered the remarks of Sanguine. There was something inspiriting in the sight of these bright mountains, something lifelike that prevented us from feeling the extreme and real desolation by which we were surrounded. At times we could not help fancying that we were in a thickly populated country, a country of vast wealth and civilization, as appeared from its architectural grandeur. Yet in reality we were journeying through the wildest of Earth's domains, where no human foot ever trod excepting such as were the moccasins the region of the wolf Apache and the wretched Amparico. We traveled up the banks of the river, and here and there, at our halting places, searching for the shiny metal. It could only be found in small quantities, and the hunters began to talk loudly of the Prito. There, according to them, the yellow gold lay in lumps. On the fourth day after leaving the Gila, 
We came to a place where the San Carlos cannon threw a high sierra. Here we halted for the night. When morning came, we found we could follow the river no further without climbing over the mountain, and Sanguine announced his intention of leaving it and striking eastward. The hunters responded to this declaration with a joyous hurrah. The golden vision was again before them. We remained at the San Carlos until after the noon heat, recruiting our horses by the stream. Then mounting, we rode forward into the plain. It was our intention to travel all night or until we reached water, as we knew that without this, halting would be useless. We had not ridden far until we saw that a fearful hornada was before us, one of those dreaded stretches without grass, wood, or water. Ahead of us we could see a low range of mountains, trending from north to south, and beyond these, another range still higher than the first. On the further range there were snowy summits, we saw that they were distinct change, and the more distant was of great elevation. This we knew from the appearance upon its peaks of the eternal snow. We knew, moreover, that at the foot of the snowy range we should find water, perhaps the river we were in search of. But the distance was immense. If we did not find it at near Sierra, we should have an adventure, the danger of perishing from thirst. Such was the prospect. We rode on over the arid soil, over plains of lava and cut rock that wounded the hoofs of the horses, laming many. There was no vegetation around us except the sickly green of the Artemisia or the fetid foliage of the creosote plant. There was no living thing to be seen save the browned and hideous lizards, the rattlesnake and the desert crickets that crawled in myriads along the parched ground and were crunched under the hooves of our animals. Water was a word that began to be uttered in several languages. Water, cried the choking trapper. Leo, ejaculated the Canadian. Agua, agua, shouted the Mexican. We were not twenty miles from the San Carlos before our gourd containers were as dry as a shingle. The dust of the plains and the hot atmosphere had created unusual thirst, and we had soon emptied them. We started late in the afternoon. At sundown, the mountains ahead of us did not seem a single mile nearer. We traveled all night, and when the sun rose again, we were still a good distance from them. Such is the illusionary character of the elevated and crystal atmosphere. The men mumbled as they talked. They held in their mouths leaden bullets and pebbles of obsidian, which they chewed with a desperate fierceness. It was some time after sunrise when I arrived at the mountain foot. To our consternation, no water could be found. The mountains were a range of dry rock, so parched like and barren, that even the creosote bush could not find nourishment along their sides. They were as naked of vegetation as when the volcano fires first heaved them into the light. Parties scattered in all directions and went up the ravines. But after a long while spent in fruitless wandering, we abandoned the search in despair. There was a pass that appeared to lead through the range, and entering this we rode forward in silence and with gloomy thoughts. We soon debouched down the when a thing of singular character burst upon our view. A plain lay before us, hemmed in on all sides by high mountains. On its further edge was a snowy ridge and with stupendous cliffs rising vertically from the plain, towering thousands of feet in the air, 
gray rocks seemed piled upon each other, higher and higher until they became buried under robes of the spotless snow. But that which appeared most singular was the surface of the plain. It was covered with a mantle of virgin whiteness, apparently of snow, and yet the more elevated spot from which we viewed it was naked, with a hot sun shining upon it. What we saw in the valley, then, could not be snow. As they gazed over the monotonous surface of this plain, and then looked upon the chaotic mountains that walled it in, my mind became impressed with the ideas of coldness and desolation. It seemed as if everything was dead around us, and nature was laid out in her winding sheet. I saw that my companions experienced similar feelings, but no one spoke, and we commenced riding down the pass that led into the singular valley. As far as we could see, there was no prospect of water on the plain. But what else could we do than cross it? On its most distant borders, along the base of the snowy mountains, we thought, we could distinguish a black line, like that of timber, and for this point we directed our march. On reaching the plain, we had appeared like snow proved to be soda. A deep encrustation of this lay upon the ground, enough to satisfy the wants of the whole human race. Yet there it lay, and no hands ever stooped to gather it in. Three or four rocky buttes were in our way, near the debouchure of the pass. As we rounded them, gathering further out into the plain, a wide gap began to unfold itself, opening through the mountains beyond. Through this gap the sun's rays were streaming in, throwing a band of yellow light across one end of the valley. and this the crystals of soda, stirred up by the breeze, appeared floating in myriads. As we descended, I observed that objects began to assume a very different aspect from what they exhibited from above. As if by enchantment, the cold, snowy surface all at once disappeared. Green fields lay before us, and tall trees sprang up covered with a thick and vernant frontage. Cottonwoods, cried a hunter, as his eyes rested on these still distant groves. Tall saplings at that, ejaculated another. What are thar, fellas, I reckon, remarked a third. Yes, sirree, you don't see sprouts as them growing out of dry paria. Look, hello. By golly, yonder's a house. A house? One, two, three, a house. Thar's a whole town, as thar's a whole shanty. Jim, look yonder. I was riding in front with Sanguine. The rest of the band strung out behind us. I had been for some time grazing upon the ground in a in sort of an abstraction, looking at the snow-white of efflorescence and listening to the crunch of my horse's hooves through its icy encrustation. These exclamatory phrases caused me to raise my eyes. The sight that met them was one that made me rein up with a sudden jerk. Penguin had done the same, and I saw the whole band had halted with a similar impulse. We had just cleared one of the buttes that had hereto obstructed our view of the great gap, this was now directly in front of us, and along its base, on the southern side, rose the walls and battlements of a city, vast city, judging from its distance and the colossal appearance of its architecture. We could trace the columns of temples and doors and gate and windows and balconies and parapets and spires. There were many towers rising high over the roofs, and in the middle was a temple-like structure with its massive dome towering far above all others. I looked upon this sudden apparition with a feeling of incredulity. 
was a dream and imagination, a mirage. Ha! It was a mirage. No, the mirage could not affect such a complete picture. There were roofs and chimneys and walls and windows. There were parapets of fortified houses with their regular notches and embrasures. It was reality. It was a city. Was this the Cibolo of the Spanish Padre? Was it the city of the golden gates and burnished towers? After all, was the story of the wandering priest true? Who had proved it a fable? Who had ever penetrated this region? The very country in which the ecclesiastic represented the golden city of Ciablo to the exist. I thought that Sengren was puzzled, dismayed, as well as myself. He knew nothing of this land. He had never witnessed a mirage like that. Sometime we sat in our saddles, influenced by strange emotions. Shall we go forward? Yes, we must reach water. We are dying of thirst, and impelled by this, we spurred onward. We had ridden only a few paces further when the hunters uttered a sudden and simultaneous cry. A new object, an object of terror, was before us. Along the mountain foot appeared a string of dark forms. They were mounted men. We dragged our horses to their haunches, our whole line halting as one man. Injuns was the exclamation of several. Indians they must be, muttered Sengman. There are no others here. Indians know they never were such as them. See, they're not men. Look, they're huge horses. They're long guns. They're, they're giants, by heaven, continued he, after a moment's pause. They're bodiless. They are phantoms. There were exclamations of terror from the hunters behind. Were these the inhabitants of the city? There was a striking proportion in the colossal size of the horses and the horsemen. For a moment I was awestruck like the rest. Only a moment. A sudden memory flashed upon me. I thought of the Hertz Mountains and their demons. I knew that the phenomenon before us could be no other, an optical illusion, a creation of the mirage. I raised my hand above my head. The foremost of the giants imitated the motion. I put spurs to my horse and galloped forward. So did he, as if to meet me. And after a few springs I had passed a reflecting angle, and like thought, the shadowed giants vanished into the air. The men had ridden forward after me, and, having also passed the angle of reflection, saw no more of the phantom host. The city, too, had disappeared. But we could trace the outlines of many a singular formation in the trap-rock strata that transversed the edge of the valley. The tall groves were no longer to be seen. But a low belt of green willows, real willows, could be distinguished along the roof of the mountain with the gap. Under their foliage there was something that sparkled in the sun like sheets of silver. It was water. It was a branch of the Prieta. A horse is neighed at the side, and shortly after we alighted upon its bank, and we were kneeling before the sweet spirit of the stream. End of chapter 34 Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan.